Latitude Podcast has been going strong for three years, and we finally reached episode 150. So we decided to take a trip down memory lane and revisit some stories about how to survive through difficult times. These difficult moments can appear in your upbringing, in your startups, ups and downs, and the market as a whole, or in your own limitations. Whatever your tough moment of the day is, we have a founder or investor who went through something similar. Or remember the challenges that entrepreneurs of the startups 99, Boozer, and Loggy faced. We'll also share deep reflections we had with investors at Atlantico, Cracks Fund, Ghana's Ventures, and General Atlantic. We hope that these lessons will inspire you to keep pushing forward on your journey to make an impact in Latin America. Vamos Latam! This first block is about surviving your starting point. We'll start with Lolita Tao, known for fostering community in the startup world. Currently, she invests in community-driven startups in the U.S. and LATAM through Ghana's Ventures. What you might not know is how her passion for community started. Community is what supported Lolita's family when she was a child. She transformed these difficult moments into inspiration when she started working in business and sales. Martin Escobari had a similar rising trajectory from Bolivia to the world. He's now the co-president of one of the largest private equity funds in the world, General Atlantic. But this wonderful journey didn't feel like that while he was walking the path. Martin stands by how the world is unpredictable, how entrepreneurs need to be respected more by investors, and how luck plays a factor if you're ready to accept it. How did you discover that community is something that you really wanted to focus on? Like, take us back to like the moment where you're like, oh, this is something that is really natural for me. Oh, gosh, this is I can go on for days on this conversation, but I'll try to keep it TLDR. It, you know, from a personal perspective, it comes from growing up in South Central um, and not a business perspective at all. Community was what kept my family uh, physically secure. We grew up in basically the neighboring city of Compton. So if you watch straight out of Compton or listen to any rap, um, it probably came or was referencing where I grew up in South Center, the Bloods, the Crips, so on and so forth. So community for me from a young age meant physical safety and also food and shelter. There were times when we didn't have enough food um, or we had a need and it was community that came in to support my family and myself. And so I always learned uh, that community was very important, especially being daughter of immigrants where my parents left their entire family behind and, and our core family was just my mom, my dad, and my two younger siblings and me. And so our family really was the community. And so it was always really important on personal side. But the bridge from there to business has really been my background and experience in sales. So I've been in tech for 15, over 15 years now. And a lot of my, my experience um, in those 15 years was sales. And I'll, I'll tie it back to, to community in a second. Um, and then the last six have been in venture capital. So how does community tie to sales? Here's, here's what's happened. And I'll tell you more of an evolution. And I, for anybody out there who loves sales, you'll love this. But there's really been an evolution in the market where you see we started some time ago. This was kind of the traditional sales go-to-market model where we go and target the C-suite to make sales happen. Then there's a next iteration. The next wave of sales was targeting department heads. Following that was let's sell to users, right? And we, this is within our lifetime where we're th thinking in 
seeing AWS and Salesforce say, you know what, we're no longer going to sell to the companies. We're actually just going to go to the users and have the users help us adopt um, our product and then make them pay lots of money, right? So we have that. So what's the next iteration? It's community, right? It's users that are actually not just users, they're people. We're actually going back to the roots of being human-centric and bringing a community together, giving them value and allowing them to create value for each other and for the community itself. And that's how it all kind of ties back together. But the reason why it's so important to me and I get so excited about community-driven companies is because there's two things in the marketplace that have happened that are super, just have made community-driven companies so timely and effective. Um, one is with COVID happening, so many people feel so lonely. Not that we weren't feeling lonely. I mean, there's statistics that show that we've been feeling lonely for a while, but that COVID really highlighted um, the fact that so many of us feel alone and we want to be part of a community, part of something bigger than ourselves. So that's really driving a lot of this community-driven um, impact in the business world. And then on the business side, more directly, right? What company wants to give all of their money to Google for ads? What better way than to expand and grow um, an LTV and lower CAC than allowing your community to be your advocate, to tell you how how to create the product they really want and want to pay for to, you know, be the talent that you need to recruit. And, and, you know, I can go on forever, but I think I'll stop there. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's funny because we built a community driven company, but we start out just by like, exactly as you said, just having lots of conversations with our, with people that we cared about, which were early stage entrepreneurs. It kind of evolved into a community mainly because we just decided we wanted to help people and then we wanted to scale our help. So we're like, how can we help more people? Let's get more people that also mm-hmm. want to help other people. And so it, it's funny because it's kind of like if you ask me how to explain English grammar, like I, I can't explain it. I just grew up speaking English and <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. And so it's interesting because, you know, you're, you're, you're someone that has, has executed on building kind of community driven organizations, part of your sales process also. Um, but you care, you truly care about a community. You do it naturally, but you also have some thoughts around it. Because for me, I just, I wouldn't even know how to explain what we've been doing. I've just been, you know, well, organizing. Well, you just did. Brian, you just <laughs> did though, right? But that's, but see, this is the thing. If you're already community driven, you're going to just do it naturally. And some of the things, and a lot of it is trial and error, right? Because say you're, your community will also have conflicting thoughts about what you should do or what you should add. And then it's part of a curator's role to be able to create that focus and figure out what you test and and try out. Because as humans, there are things that are going to be messy, but you just explained it beautifully. It's an organic process because it's all very human-centric. I'll hit past my halfway life. So as I reflect on the journey so far, it's an unlikely journey, right? I mean, you, you summarized it, but town of 10,000 people. And for a little boy from Bolivia to, you know, go to full ride on, in, at Harvard to start up a company in Brazil, to take it public, to have it be the first tech IPO in, ever, ever in Brazil. And then for the last 17 years, uh, to have been an investor in technology and growth, uh, roughly 12 of those years in Latin America and the last five on a global role. Uh, and now I'm co-president of one of the 
10 largest private equity funds in the world. It's an unlikely journey, a fortunate journey that makes sense when I explain it, but it didn't make sense during their journey. It was a series of very lucky accidents and a handful of near disaster experiences that you know, you sort of navigate. And then when you look back, you're like, oh, it's nice and pretty. What a wonderful journey. But I didn't feel like it during the journey. But um, I am, in fact, an investor like you who has had an experience being an entrepreneur and who has had a ride that has seen a fair number of, as I said, lucky accidents and near-death experiences. And I think it's changed the way I am as an investor in three fundamental ways. First, I have a humility to understand that the world is unpredictable. Our job as investors is to predict the world. It's incredibly hard. The world is unpredictable, has been unpredictable, will be unpredictable. And one could argue the world is becoming more unpredictable. The second insight is the heroes of the journey are the entrepreneurs, not the investors. The guys and gals that are in the front lines creating the new fighting the good fight, are the true heroes. And uh, we're the supply lines. We provide resources, we provide some knowledge, we provide some tools, but the guys in the front line are the entrepreneurs and there's so much respect for how hard it is to create the new, to break the old and create the new. And I'm always reminded that it's their credit, their work, their insight, their magic, which creates the new. And then... The third insight, as I look at what the future might look like for a new company, there are some business models that are elegant and create durable value. And there are just some business models that are 10 times harder. And I've tried to not only respect the fact that life is hard, but there there are some journeys that are much harder than others. And uh, I try to guide our entrepreneurs to choose the path of least resistance with elegance and their business models and their strategies, which leads to more durable value, I think. Do you think that you, given that you've been through the challenges and all the suffering that exists when you're building a company, does that generate more empathy with the the entrepreneurs? Because you you do have a reputation as being someone that people want to work with and people desire to have on board. What do you think, besides an incredible track record as an investor, what do you think your experience as an entrepreneur has helped you? How has it helped you on your journey as an investor? So first of all, when you're an entrepreneur, like you and I were in Latin America, years in Latin America are like dog years. They're worth seven years because we hit a, a defining crisis. We hit a great financial crisis every two to three years. So you have the pattern recognition where none of these crises scare you anymore. Because my insight is, as long as you stay alive, you live on through the winter and the spring comes. And that peace of mind to assure entrepreneurs that no matter how dark the winter looks, spring will come in due course and there are things we can do to survive to make it through the spring. I think that is comforting. The second insight is I remember as an entrepreneur, uh, we, we come with scars and blood and mud in our boots to the board meetings and some 27-year-old recent graduate from an Ivy League school would complain about variance on some cost or working capital. And I was like, just not right. I mean, who are you to tell me uh, and demand better performance when, when I'm the one in the front lines? And I, I 
promised myself I would never be that guy. We're, we're on the same side of the war, and we have to be constructive and respectful. And uh, I think that guides how I behave as a board member, as a partner to the entrepreneurs. Your role is like co-president. What is the official title? Chair of the Investment Committee and co-president. So it's incredible, like coming from a small town in Bolivia to reaching these levels of success. And when you think about Latin America, obviously it's a region of the world, but we're talking about a global firm, one of the top firms in the world. When you were younger and you thought about your journey and you're you're building your first companies, when you imagine your future and you thought about where you can become, went through your mind in terms of getting to where you are today? And did you kind of envision it? Did you visualize what you wanted? There's always new goals to, to set. Talk about your, your personal journey of defining what you wanted to, to become as an investor, and kind of how you, you look on that. And then thinking about what's next for you. How do you when, you, when you get to the levels of success where you are, like, how do you keep kind of elevating? Walk us through kind of your thought process and where you are, because you've hit one of the highest levels that you can get to, right? It's scary to hear you say that. Listen, I, I keep a journal since I was 12. So I have all these notebooks. Now it's online, but I, I have notebooks. And there's when I was 16, I did a very detailed map of my life. I, I, I had it down to my day of death at age of 86, which that, that was the life expectancy at the time. I had it perfectly planned. And it's nothing like that. Nothing in that timeline came to be. Absolutely nothing. Not the country I'm living in, not the profession I am in, not the level of wealth, not the level of... Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, similarly... I'm living a blessed life. And I'm similarly, when I decided it was time to look for a wife, I did my checklist and I, I researched and I, I had some level of pattern recognition, having dated somewhat, I knew what I liked and I didn't like. So I did my checklist and I mapped the perfect wife. And I was, it was 10 years later, I was 27. And my life partner for 22 years would have scored very poorly on that checklist. So our ability to predict life and to predict who we're going to marry and find love and purpose and is very, very poor. Um, my guiding light has been competing against myself, making sure that every day I'm a little better than the day before in ways that are meaningful and being absolutely open to the magic of chaos. I don't know where I'll be by the age of 70. I plan the next two years. And I, have, I find that I have a relatively good accuracy of what I can do in the next two years. After that, it gets very, very sloppy. Uh, but my north light is, am I, am I getting better? Am I a better father? That's become very, very important. I have two daughters. Am I a better husband? Am I, am I a better um, trainer of future generations of entrepreneurs and and investment professionals, that's becoming more and more important as my energy level is not what it used to be. And it's still pretty high. I mean, I can still beat most of the 30-year-olds, but the 20-year-olds, they got more energy than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different gear when you're 22, uh, 25. It's a different gear. It's a different gear. It shows that you really are passionate about what you're doing too, because you, given that you're able to kind of keep at the pace that you do, you don't reach that level of, focus and interest 
on something that is not intellectually stimulating and exciting, right? It just doesn't happen. If you love what you do, work doesn't feel like work. Unfortunately, just like you don't know who your perfect partner is, it's really hard to know what you're going to love doing. So my advice, every time someone comes and try, you know, younger people, you know, people who are still in college and try to give me a, a get advice, what I think is the best piece of advice is try many things and see what you like. You don't know what you're going to like until you try it. And it's not going to come out of a spreadsheet or looking at the Forbes richest people in the world saying, I want to be like Elon Musk. I'm doing the Elon Musk play. But you don't know. Try. Very quickly yeah. you find out. Very quickly you find out if you like something or not. But you can't imagine it until you try it. The interesting thing is the resources and the ideas are available to all, but only a few capture it. It takes a very specific breed of human being to be able to capture an opportunity. You know, Facebook didn't invest, invent social media. There was Friendster, and before that, there were many other early versions of it, yet somehow Zuckerberg and his team seized the moment. The same thing with, you know, books with Amazon and, and with Apple and, and many others. Uh, there's something about the entrepreneur or the entrepreneurs that is magical, that is divine, that is enlightened. Uh, and the signs of enlightenment are hard to pinpoint. I refer to a couple things. First, I look for a track record of success. And just like talent is evenly distributed in the world, for an average lifespan of 90 years for our, my generation, Good luck and bad luck is also evenly distributed. Yet some people are able to dribble away from the bad luck and season the good luck with a higher propensity than other people. I want those people. I want the lucky people. Because they're not lucky. They're just better at capturing luck. Because luck happens to everyone. There's just enough days in the world that we all get our fair share of lucky lottery tickets. Sometimes we catch them in, sometimes we don't. I want the guy that catches it in. And you try to find, as you look at and listen to the person's life, have they been lucky? Tell me the lucky breaks. Tell me the opportunity. And it can be minor. It can be a judo competition. It can be a overcoming a learning difficulty. It can be coming out of a horrible civil war in their country. But somehow they captured a fleeting opportunity showing uh, resourcefulness. I look for a rebus, you know, this sort of this concept from alchemy of people that have both the left side and the right side of their brain well-developed. They are creative, but they're also engineers. They're long-term thinkers, but they're also very pragmatic. They're good with people. They're good with numbers. I look for the well-balanced magician. It is often two people. Hallmark has JP and Mateus. They're very different. They, 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 you would never imagine them as being close friends because they're so different. But the complementarity of both of them, they're actually pretty well-balanced. They're rebels. So I look for that. And then the final thing, the final two things. I look for people who have an extra tank of oxygen. Life as an entrepreneur is really hard. There's a fair amount of frustration and failure and grind. And some people have an extra tank of oxygen. And, it's a text, and that extra motivation, that, that extra energy is often born out of trauma. Their family lost everything at some point. They were the poor kid in, the, in a rich neighborhood. 
some girlfriend dumped him because he was inappropriate and they want to prove the world. Sometimes that extra tank is based on purpose. They care passionately about income inequality and inclusion. They care passionately about climate because something in their life made that meaningful to them. So when you have those people competing in the open market against other entrepreneurs that don't have that extra tank of oxygen, I bet on the guy with the extra tank of oxygen. And then finally, I ask myself, I'm going to spend 5 to 10% of my adult life next to this person on this journey. Do I want to do that? Is, is that something that fits with my purpose, my energy, my extra tanks of energy, uh, of oxygen? And there are some people that are just not worthy of being in 10% of your life. And I choose people who are worthy, who think like us, who want to make the world better, who have passion, who have ethics, and who think win-win. And if you meet all those criteria, you become a GA company. It's really hard to meet all these criteria, but when you hit it, it tends to work out rather positively for, for all parties. After you've survived your starting point, you might be facing tough times in your startup's ups and downs. And nobody knows that better than Fabian Mendez and Marcelo Brita. Fabian created the logistics unicorn Logi, while Marcelo is the founder of the mobility company Boozer. Both have faced the unpredictability of fundraising and government regulations. And here's how they handle it all. What's the most humbling experience you've had as a founder? I think the more humbling experience where I really like didn't sleep is why in the series B and the series C, we were running out of cash, literally like two weeks of cash. And at the same time, because we did some mistakes around repricing, we were paying our partners, we were getting like big protests from the drivers in Sao Paulo. So, so we went in a situation where our drivers went from loving us to hating our guts in one day. We were running out of cash because we lacked the drivers. We could not perform our deliveries, so, so our clients hated us. And this is the moment when you get no cash, you need to make for payroll. Drivers hate your guts. Clients start hating your guts like you don't sleep well at night. And then, of course, you, know, you think of all the mistakes you made. I mean, yeah, you are too confident in thinking. You would get the cash that easily. You were too arrogant in the way you reprised the driver and the way you communicated it. So yeah, it was deep. It was brutal. And, uh, but we were like, I think at the moment we were a bit lucky. We managed to, to close our series C like at the final minute of the game. And then there was a lot of learning for this moment after series C. We thought, okay, let's never rely on venture capital again. Let's be much more respectful when dealing with the drivers and the, uh, and so, yeah, I, in a few months, we managed to break even the business. Actually, like we were a bit that positive. We were generating cash and everything was doing well. And this is precisely when like a third bank came along and said like, Hey, man, do you want some extra money to fuel your, your endeavor? You know, so, so it was a huge ups and downs. You know, it went from being completely broke and saying, I'm going to break even everything. And, and then do you want this? A, a train of cash. And perhaps in retrospect, it was not the best idea to take this train of cash, but it was the end of 2015. This particular week of no cash in the bank account and uh, 
unrest from the driver was a really critical moment. I didn't sleep very deeply this moment of my life. I think it's important for founders to hear that because there's a lot of founders right now that are having struggling raising capital. And I remember in, at Vivarao, we had $87 in the bank account and 25 people in the early days, 25 people in the team and no idea how we were going to make payroll. So how were you able to pull it out at the end when you were able to kind of eke out the round and what were the key things that learned from that besides not getting to the point where you have your on fumes and depending on investors? Uh, besides that, what did you learn and how did you pull it out? I think it was a mix of perseverance. So, so I think it would, I mean, I could have collapsed myself as, a, as an individual because it was too much to take. So this is why uh, so, so first lesson was to take care of mental health, meditating, always do a bit of exercise, talk to someone if needed. So, so, so managed to hold and it's important to be able to learn, to hold and to create the routine to be able to hold an individual in this very critical moment. So first to be able to hold. Second thing was to and to persevere, so I kept on pitching and taking questions of investors at 2am and sending spreadsheets and explaining why by A, B, and C we will like solve everything, etc. So it's a lot of perseverance and I think a bit of luck, to be honest. I think we were happy to find in, in Microsoft, the IFC and our existing investors like this willingness to keep on funding the company. But yeah, so we were also very lucky. So, so, so. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. You had the idea that was big enough that attracted venture capital. Yeah. Let's talk about the motivation to raise venture capital. Tell me about that. How did yeah, that happen? Yeah, it was just the only option. You know, uh, the project was always going to be something that would make or break. And if it would make, it would be gigantic. And if it would lose, it would probably fail quite fast. The first pitch deck we presented said there and then that 70% of the capital we raised were going to be used to pay for lawyers to study. What can we do and what can we not and to, to keep us going as, as the operations progressed. So the decision was pretty simple. It was like either I will go back working at a bank or I'll take that money and give it a try. And they were supportive enough to say, it's okay if you fail in 12 years, in 12 months, no problem. Just go there and try your best. <laughs> I guess we took our chances. That's awesome. From what I understand is that you got a pretty immediate offer from Canary, right? A week after the that first bus that got arrested, I, I talked to them, Canary, Florian, and Machi, co-CEOs and co-founders at Loft, right? The the interview was quite funny because uh, I, I basically pressed play on the TV reporter piece. It was like a seven-minute piece on the biggest TV chain of Brazil talking about it. And my partner got slapped in the face by the police because saying they were clandestine, but the but the passengers all supported us. So it was, I guess that, that drove them. <laughs> they liked it. it. It actually turned out to be an amazing story, right? Yes. You've got your customers fighting for you. And then you've got yeah. this authority that like is unfairly treating an entrepreneur, right? Closing a, a loop, you know, um, last week, the state in which that first trip took place changed the law and made our business entirely legal. So completely ended the, the litigations. So it's a, a very funny experience because we started and the, the police people that were arresting the buses, they still work there today. 
that consensus was created that okay this is a good thing the prices are going down these guys are serious the buses are good the people are traveling more the people are paying less and uh, it's all good so you know it's like almost like that peacetime after the war <laughs> sort of feeling and i'm sure that's going to follow throughout brazil so we're very very excited no absolutely and uh what great outcome i have to say for those listening i think it's interesting to hear the fact that you tell an investor we're going to need 70% of the money for lawyers. That's not yeah. a traditional. Usually when you say you're going to raise money, it's like, okay, we're going to invest in this product. It's going to be amazing. When you you know say that we're going to have to lawyer up and change this industry. <laughs> um, so kudos to, to the Canary team for making a bet there. It was like 70% and the rest was like, yeah, just give me some money and I'll see what I can do. I was able to fill up a bus with basically nothing. I'll probably be able to keep on filling them just because it's half the price. And that happened. So it was just the rest of the money was just to pay for our salary. We spent the entire seed stage with just me, my co-founder, one junior developer and one senior developer who is now a CTO. We didn't have money to pay him. So he only worked one day a week and we raised our series A. The team was that size, three and a half people. Wow. <laughs> wow. But by that time, uh, I don't know, three or four months after we started, the first trip was generating a lot of cash to the company. We weren't positive, but uh, only because we had to pay a very big lawyer bill. <laughs> uh, but the buses itself were, were driving full, just two buses then. And then um, Monashis and Valor had the insight to, to bet again on us. And, and I think our biggest asset wasn't our traction or anything. It was just the, the clarity that we had that this is going to be really, really big or it's not going to be anything. And uh, I guess this is exactly what venture capitalists are looking for, right? It, it's yeah. hard for people outside Brazil to understand the dimension of the bus transportation system here. You know, it's really hundreds of millions of passengers a year. It's a low-income country, so there are no flights, no airports in the smaller cities. Uh, even rich cities do not have many flights, you know. Like, I live in San Jose, which is a quite wealthy city, but it's so close to Sao Paulo that there are no flights. Everybody just has to fly to Sao Paulo. So it turns out that the bus is a big part of their lives. No Brazilian in the US, people don't really use the bus to travel anywhere. But in Brazil, basically everybody has done a trip by bus. So yeah, it's a primary mode of transportation. I remember my first bus experience uh, in Brazil. I, I had 30 friends that came to visit me and we were in Rio and I rented a bus. And it was, a, it was oh, there you go. I didn't have the foresight that you had. But I, I did the, I did Thanks the, for that. I did the research and I found, you know, someone that would rent me a bus for like a couple of days and, uh, reasonably priced and it worked well, but didn't have the vision that you had, obviously. So when we look at this fundraising process, so you raise a little bit of money, you're now on your way. I think there's a couple of takeaways. One small team, right? Three and a half people. You're scrappy. You're using Wix website to test before you're getting demand before you even have a product. Like these are all lessons for founders because founders think that they need this like big investment early on. They think they need to yeah. build these crazy products, but very lean. Super, super lean. Like it was basically nothing. By that time, you know, those two developers had built a little bit better of a product than, than the Wix website. So we launched with the Wix website and then when we got VC, we, we switched it to this guy that is now our CTO. He, he got on board because he saw, you know, what was happening, you know, the Facebook page was getting more and more followers. 
the bus was arrested and then we got PC and it was like, can I please help you uh, build your first version? Because I can do a good job on the foundation of what you're going to need. And uh, you don't even have to pay me that much. I just would like to help you to, because if you start wrong, it's going to be very hard for you to change in the future. And I, I had known this guy from, from university and I knew he was very capable. So I said, yeah, please do. I'm taking all the help I can get. So I paid him, I think it was like $2,000. But he built that first stack of, you know, the database and the structure for the front end and the very simple stuff, which are really the foundation of everything in a very, very good way. You know, best practices, I guess. And we still use that version today. So it was a big, big, big thing, big hit that we got to, to start with the right foot there. And but it was still super scrappy. I was on all of the boardings for that entire one year period. So I was the one checking the documents of the passengers, putting their bags inside the bus, trying to gauge if they were liking it or not, trying to understand what is it that they value? Is it the bus itself? Is it the price? We didn't have any infrastructure. So people, if there was rain, they would have to board under the rain. <laughs> yeah, quite shitty. It's that famous quote from uh, the Reed Hoffman, if you're not embarrassed of your first version, you launched too late. And we took that to heart. And um, from my time as an entrepreneur before venture-backed entrepreneurship, I had read all the books. So I, I had read about those concepts. And to be honest, they didn't feel quite real to me, you know. Uh, but as Bruiser progressed, basically everything that I had read came to be, you know. Uh, the importance of just being scrappy and fast the importance of having super good people. Like it was three and a half people, but it was three and a half really, really good people. The importance of big sense of purpose in what everybody was doing, this drives a commitment level in, in Boozer is unimaginable because if you're solving a big problem, that big problem becomes a, a true purpose for everybody. I wasn't in love with transportation, but I am now because I can see that we can do something real in it, right? And as you get good, you get more in love with it. So all these things, you know, we're adding together as those concepts starting to make sense. And then when I talked to other entrepreneurs, to Florian, to those, the other guy who, who was my first, who connected me to Florian, actually. And they always Bernardo. had such, such, yeah, Bernardo, founder of Care Education. They always had such good advice. That for a brief moment during the seed period, I was almost not thinking, just asking them, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> and executing on, on their advice. So, yeah, it was, it was a very fun time couple things I want to frame here. So I think find it fascinating on a couple of levels. So first of all, you've got these really smart people like this CTO guy that ends up building this tech stack for you, willing to do it for like not a lot of money, small team, everybody's kind of all in on it. And you're doing that and you don't have like a, an amazing business yet. You just got an idea, but you've got a really big idea that's going to impact a lot of people. And yeah. so my, I remember my dad used to always tell me, tell me, you want missionaries, you know, you don't, you don't want mercenaries. And the best way to find someone that's on a mission with you is to have a big, big vision and mission that you want to attack. Let's talk about secondaries for a second, because this is a topic that is not discussed a lot in Brazil. I remember the first time I sold some secondary stock, there was six or seven entrepreneurs. We were in Pinheiros and all of them were just like, so interested on the fact that I actually made money in my startup. I remember, you know, everyone was like, how much did you sell? What, 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 what happened? What did the investors say? So what are your thoughts on secondary and 
Is that something that's going to become more common in Brazil as you have larger funding rounds? I think so. Our, what happened to me was I wanted to get a secondary because I was getting stressed because by that time, Boozer had some value, right? I want If I wanted to sell it, I could. In fact, we received a, an offer for an acquisition, which we passed by the time we raised the Series A. So we had an option to sell there and then, which to my own financial life, it was like a lot of money. <laughs> I'm not super ambitious in terms of how rich am I going to get, but it was good for me. And then we said no, and we continued. And then when, when it got to the point of the Series B, it, it actually came on the term sheet. The two founders are going to sell some of their stock on the same price of the round. And you can sell to any qualified investor you want. You can bring a new investor. You can sell to the current one. It turned out that we sold to the, to the current ones because they were all eager for more exposure and we were happy. It was really smart of them because I was getting really nervous at every hard moment because I, I could see that well, I didn't want that thing to fail anymore because it was a lot of money that I could pocket, right? And if it went down, I'd lose it all. So it was making me not be as aggressive as I should be to pursue the model that we are in. And when they did that, it, it gave us the confidence to keep pushing. It's not, we didn't cash out an obscene amount of money, but it does give us a little peace of mind so that when things get rough, we don't panic. I'm sure if I had not taken that by now, I would probably have freaking out. I'm sure your wife appreciated it also, right? My wife, when, when yeah. I sold some stock, it was like, okay, this thing's real. There's actually money in the bank. It's not like some yeah. paper money. My thing. wife, I think that's also an advice you know, that I give that I got as well. It's going to be a bumpy ride and you need to have some stability and find some stability somewhere. Some people do it on sports. And with me, it was um, with me and my wife, she was so supportive throughout everything. So she, she didn't care that much really because she was like, I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> it was just a matter of time. I did feel really good about it, but she, she didn't really care. <laughs> I write about that in my book a little bit about the kind of the, the combination of like the family and the balance and how to navigate this. There's a great book called Surviving and Thriving in a Relationship with an Entrepreneur by Brad Feld. And I remember I had my wife read that when we were when I was building my company, and we we talk about it. And uh, my wife is an entrepreneur as well, but she did what I failed. She has a company that is sort of a lifetime company, a lifestyle business, and she gets a real good cash flow, and she can work on her own terms and 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 whatnot. But we both kind of agreed that Boozer was a disproportionate opportunity for us as a couple, and she really backed me to go and do the sacrifices that were necessary. And I'm kind of emotional. There were days that I was really crying, you know, in panic. Oh, what's going to happen? They're arresting all of our buses. It's, it's bumpy. Yeah. I, think. It's, it's, <laughs> I heard that you were a bit risk averse before starting your first business and then you weren't even... 100%. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> so um, what, how did you launch into like the most risk, <laughs> risky, uh, restricted regulation business, always kind of risk averse? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I just clicked and commit, you know, and it just, my mind switched and said, well, this is how this game is played. So if you're not going to go play, don't, don't come to the party. And, uh, if you're in it, be in it for good. And that's what I did. But every, every time we raised money, except for the first time, because it was a very small check, right? The seed round. 
it was something that I could manage. I had managed that before in another company, but the Series A and the Series B was such a vast sum of money for, for my understanding then. I had to recalibrate then every time because I, oh my God, if I lose this money, I'm never going to recover. So yeah. I would go and talk to an entrepreneur that had failed after raising that amount of money to, to kind of see what, what, what was the experience like, how did he deal with the pain and stuff, because it's, I'm sure it doesn't feel good. Uh, but they all reported that uh, that's how it is. This is our industry. You're going after an oversized reward and some people are going to be stuck in the middle. And as long as you're doing your best and pushing with all your might and not being stupid and obviously not doing anything unethical, if that happens, there's not going to be a, a rope around your neck. You're more than likely to be allowed the chance to start again. You might get through your starting point and your business's ups and downs, and then the market crashes. What should you do? We talked to some investors about that. Anna Martins and Julio Vasconcelos talked about the common yet difficult decision of downsizing to preserve runway. And we go back to our chat with Martin Escobari because he also had something to say about not only surviving, but embracing the market storm. When it comes to layoffs, I think this has been a measure used by companies worldwide to be able to extend runway um, in this moment where capital availability is not as abundant as it was last year. And we wanted to kind of get a sense of, you know, what's what's the magnitude of that in LATAM and, and how can we best help our portfolio companies as well as they navigate this environment. And so what we did is we went, um, we partnered with our sister fund Canary to conduct some primary research around early stage companies here in LATAM and how they were thinking about cutting costs. And layoffs were one of the many things that they mentioned, right? And was among, among the top five actions that they took being, I think the first one being hiring freezes, the second one being cutting costs on sales and marketing, but about one third of those companies had conducted layoffs within their own companies. And so we wanted to also understand the magnitude of that. And so we went on and conducted an additional study uh, with, with our partner Runa, it's a payroll software company there in Mexico. And we surveyed about 500 company leaders from HR and other executive roles across LATAM. And what we found was that about 80% of companies reduced headcount by less than 10% of employees. So there were a lot of companies that did layoffs, but the layoffs weren't as nearly as big as at least we expected as investors, having felt this impact in the market um, firsthand. But it's definitely something that that's happening across the region. And I think one interesting part of that was that most layoffs were related to areas that were correlated with growth. So most of the layoffs were either in sales and ops. Companies were, you know, trying their best um, to keep a lot of their te technology team. So I think we're just starting to see that impact. And, and this is the data that we found in LATAM. I would, I would assume it's something similar in the U.S., but that's not a, a data point that we focused on in the report. You mentioned runway. Obviously, that's a huge concern. Investors look at their portfolio and they kind of evaluate, OK, who's got enough cash? Who do we need to, you know, maybe maybe help out? Uh, you know, who's in a tight spot? It's your research has shown that companies are targeting an extended runway of, of you know six more months than maybe they would have in, in regular market conditions. Uh, do you think that's enough? You know, how much runway should founders and LATAM be aiming for? And I guess this you know answer can be addressed you know given the stage of the company and, and a handful of other variables. But we'd just like to hear from you too. What's the internal advice that you're giving your founders, either Atlantico or in Can at Canary, and how do you see most of the market? 
uh, prepared for this current kind of market slowdown? So, Brian, I mean, we we go way back, right? I think, you know, I've been, um, you know, starting and running companies here and investing here in the region for over 10 years. You know, curiously, actually, my very first investment here was that seed round of uh, Viva Real where you invited us in. Um, and I'm going to ask you the same question, whether it's enough. But first, I'm going to give you my my opinion on it. You know, I think that cutting six or adding six months of runway, or or I think as as Anna said, you know, like a, a reduction of a workforce of you know, I think we, what we saw in the research, it's most companies have reduced under ten percent of of their workforce. That's not really. Of reduction, right? That's much more of a performance review, uh, in my opinion. That's something that should be happening almost naturally on an annual basis. And I think when you think about uh, founders, uh, they should be thinking not just about trimming the fat that's been building up over these last couple of years of abundance, but I think they should be really thinking about how do you go into the muscle and in some cases even cut down to the bone to be able to survive through, I think, what are going to be some pretty, uh, pretty tough years. I think cutting, you know, adding six months of runway, in my opinion, is is pretty marginal. I don't think things are going to go back to next year's levels in six months. And honestly, I don't think that they're ever going to go back to next year's levels, uh, at least no, none in the in, in the in the near future. And I think founders have to accept that reality that what we saw in the last couple of years or even in the last decade was really the exception. Uh, and now we're back to much more uh, of the reality. And you know how much runway you should have, I think obviously depends a lot on the company and the margin profile and how fast you can get to break even. But you know I think having at least two years of runway uh, seems to be the sort of the prudent choice. And maybe if you want to be overly conservative, shoot more towards three years. But adding six months is not is not what I would consider um, the right level of uh, reaction to to where we are today. But I don't know, Brian. And you, you obviously have as much experience as I do. I'd love to hear your your opinion on this. Yeah, I'd say six months, extending six months. If you've already got two years, is a good idea. Um, but if you've got you know if you've got six months and you're extending another six months, you're you're gonna you know you're gonna be in for a world world of hurt if you're you're not prepared. So I think that when I talk to founders, there's a handful of things you can do. You know, obviously, be very prudent on your costs initiatives. And I remember you handed me a book at one point. Uh, I can't remember the name of the book. You'll remember when I was looking for some some inspiration there as we were, you know, going through a merger. And what's the name of the book, Julio? Are you are you gonna are you gonna remember? Double, double double your profits, right? Or something like that. Yeah. It was kind of like a it's kind of a cheese cheesy name book and it but it was like very tactical and like had very um you know so I think maybe we'll drop the the link in the show notes. But that that was uh it was good because it was a very practical, like no nonsense. Like some companies were in La La, La Land for a while, right? And they're just like in a, in a world of abundance. My dad used to always tell me that in his business career, the times when he made the dumbest decisions when he was like doing really well financially because you just get kind of lax. And I, and I think that another thing that I encourage a lot of founders is initiatives like prepayments for software as a service companies where you can collect, you know, revenue up front and you put more cash you know, coming from your customers. Those are things that founders, you know, should be thinking about um, because they just, you know, you, you load more up on your on your balance sheet and you're, you're in a better position um, to kind of weather the storm. So, yes, I agree with you. I would say two years, you know, plus we're, we were very fortunate at, uh, at Latitude to time things well and we, we put a lot of cash on the balance sheet. Um, but, you know, I would I would definitely be tiding over 
looking for some extensions if you can. And then, you know, driving revenue from your customer base to customer bases is the old school way of doing it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's the best, best there is. I think that the best investors that I've talked to, they're just like not surprised when things happen. Like that, I would, that's one of the ways I describe like the best entrepreneurs, those that have kind of seen the movie before. When you compare that with like, an investor that's kind of early in their journey, hasn't seen every cycle, and then there's a reaction to things. And that does not help any entrepreneur if there's like this crazy reaction and you're losing your cool. Of course, there's emotional ups and downs. So given that we're in this current cycle, I think a good kind of transition from that is like, give us some wisdom here on how to navigate inflation, Ukraine, like what's your internal narrative And for those first-time investors that are living through, this is mainly for growth investors because I still see early, early stage. This isn't really spilled over to like pre-seed and seed because those are just companies that are reinventing industries. So it's too, you know, there's just so much potential still for for those things. But when you see an investment that you made that's marked down 50% from last year, maybe because you did it a little too fast, potentially, um, what are you or not? Because, you know, the world is, is where it is today. What's your advice to them? Winter is here, and it's going to get colder. We're only beginning in the uh, reversal of a cycle of interest rate reductions to interest rate rises, where at the same time the Fed and the, the European Central Banks have to reduce liquidity in the market. Those two things at the same time, where you're also in the 15 year of an expansion and we're due for a recession cyclically, those three storms are brewing as winter begins. So my base case is the next two years are really, really tough. You also have an excess of too many companies. Last year, over a trillion dollars was raised into growth companies in, in, in the globe. And just in Latin America, just last year, we deployed more money than the previous 19 years combined. So there's too many startups that don't deserve the right to survive. Uh, so the next two years are going to be around consolidation, And they're going to be around no liquidity events and very expensive money. The strong will get stronger and the weak will disappear. And that's a very exciting time if you're strong, if you rise up to the challenge. And part of being strong starts with making sure you have a fully funded plan, making sure that your unit economics respect the laws of physics, meaning you can make money eventually or you're currently making money, and being bold to reimagine your industry at a time of tremendous storms. You can vertically and horizontally integrate in ways that wouldn't be possible under normal temperature conditions. As I reflect on my biggest home runs as an investor and as an entrepreneur, it's been during times of storm. But it takes a certain character and it takes a certain partnership. Having the right partners to navigate the storm is really, really important. Uh, choose your partners. Hold hands, brace for the storm, and profit from it. It will be very exciting. You just can't die. Don't be part of that 70% of companies that die. Be the one that survives and emerges stronger. Talk to someone that has seen a few cycles and you know, know that your observations around like the next couple of years, there are a couple of companies that are incredibly well positioned. to. And so if you're an entrepreneur and you're, you're hearing this and you've got a fully funded company right now, probably you're going to see an incredible amount of, of, of opportunities. And so 
Would you advise those companies to kind of, if you can, if you're a growth company, you're obviously, if you've tightened your belts, you're, what's the last kind of advice you have, you know, specifically for say series B, series C, series D companies. There was a kind of that 2020 advice that everybody had. Do you think that that advice maybe wasn't the right advice in 2020 that we heard, you know, a lot of board meetings? I mean, you were in boards and you probably heard when COVID was kind of in full flux. Do you think that maybe that was the right advice, but just the wrong timing? Listen, growth at any cost never makes sense. Let's say never. Uh, 98% of the business models should not subscribe to growth at any price. And we're back to growth at reasonable prices. Yeah. And the only way you truly ensure your right to survive is if you turn a profit. The day we turned a profit at Submarino, we felt immortal. No one ever from that moment on could kill us. You're going to feel a lot better the day you turn a profit. The last tough time you might have to face as a startup founder in Latin America is surpassing your own limitations. Remember that no matter how far you are in your journey, you always can learn and become a better person and founder. That's exactly what happened with Oso Trava from Cracksmund and Peter Fernandez, the former CEO of the Mobility Unicorn 99, also had to discover who he really is and where he wanted to be. And Peter learned to become a better leader at 99 and to break free of societal pressure after the sale to Chinese big tech DD. At Latitude, our virtues are, one of the virtues is GSD, which I'll tell you a little bit of story behind that. I always had some insecurities around not going to like a top business school because everyone I met went to Stanford like you. And I'm like, wow, these people are so impressive. And I remember like thinking like, oh, I didn't study business. Can I be a business leader? You know, that's my early, my twenties, kind of like your own personal battles that you, that you face. And so we came up, I came up with this, you know, this um, virtue of GSD and it's kind of a, a you know, wordplay on GSB, right? Which uh, attend the school of GSD of get shit done. And I know that's a big part of your book is, you know, moving on to doing meaningful shit or DMS, right? Um, right. So how would you advise startup founders to make that transition? And what are the steps they need to take? Oh, man. I mean, that, that, that is a subject that I could ramble about for hours. Um, so I had this wall, this, this yellow wall behind my desk at InstaFit. And it, uh, my team just had these really cool letters stuck to the wall that get that, that read "get shit done," and that was like my thing, right? Like uh, for for twenty years, I just got shit done. I wasn't the idea guy. I just got the idea and got to work and made things happen. And in the end, I mean, you get so caught up with doing stuff and never stopping to smell the roses and never really celebrating your successes and it never really being enough that you can kind of get lost. And that that happened to me. And I found myself in this really dark place uh, after 10 years building businesses, uh, just being irritable, uh, estranged from my family, uh, from myself, not, not enjoying life, uh, 
no matter what. Uh, anything that happened around me could be interpreted as, a, as something that hurt me. And I was constantly being angry and sad. And it was just dark. And there was this day when my, my wife just came to me and said, why do you hate your life? And it made me stop on my tracks and really take a, a deep look at, um, at who I was, what I wanted to build, what, who I wanted to become. And, and I embarked in this like self discovery, personal growth journey that is reflected in the book. And it's, you know, basically a five step process that, uh, englobes a lot of tools and books and courses and, you know, podcasts that I've uh, listened to. And it's just basically de- deciding or going through who, who you are. And where you are, like sometimes we feel uh, uncomfortable, and we can't really put our finger on what is exactly making us uncomfortable. So where you are, where you want to be, and that comes with uh, you know getting rid of our chains and just setting goals that are not tied to past results, and just letting ourselves dream. And then how you make time uh, to to actually focus on building these uh, dream results, uh, how to create a, a plan that produces these results. And it, it comes to basically focus, prioritization and focus. And then in the end, you know, this sounds like a pretty run-of-the-mill productivity program, but what actually makes this worth it and worthwhile and important to me is the last part, which is why does it all matter? Like, why do you want to become this person? Why do I, you want to achieve these goals? Why, why does it really matter? And I talk about the two sides to motivation, your uh, gran mana, which is what I call it, your, like your MTP, your massive transformative purpose. And then your, your big pain, which I call it the, the, your gran batalla, which is something that we shy away from. We sweep under the, the rug. We all have this thing that kind of puts us in motion because we are hell-bent on never going back to that place. Uh, and once we connect with these two sides of motivation, then uh, we can actually put our, our mind, our heart, our time, our resources into building all this that we've uh, envisioned. And you know, when, when you have this clarity, you're able to uh, decide whether to pursue a project or not, whether to embark on a new business venture or not, whether to uh, develop a relationship or not, or basically just cut it from your life. And it just makes sense. It was a rough start. I mean, it was a very rocky start. And I created a lot of friction when I became CEO. And uh, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to Andre, who was our CFO. He's now the founder of Alice, who basically called me one day and said, listen, I'm going to tell you exactly what people say about you, because I want you to understand the impression you're giving off. And so, for example, he said... um, People say that you're really smart and really good, but you don't like working here. And I was shocked to hear that because I actually loved working there. And it was bizarre for me to hear that I was giving people the impression that I did not like what I was doing and where I was. So I had to do a lot of like real soul searching of like, why am I giving off? Like, why am I making people feel this way? which is obviously not a good way to make them feel. No one's going to do their best if they think that their boss doesn't even like being there, right? 
So I'm enormously grateful to him today. And basically what I ended up at was uh, self-care. The fundamental problem was that I was treating myself like shit. I was sleeping four hours a night. I was incredibly stressed about how the business was going. Uh, We went through a turnaround early on. It was uh, difficult, right? A turnaround means if you don't succeed, you might not survive. So it's very stressful. It's sort of a life or death situation. The emotional impact of that on me was was large. On top of that, you know, I took things very personally. I, I distinctly remember, you know, leaving bars and restaurants with friends and everyone would pull out their phone and call an Uber. And I would be like, man. And one time a friend was like, oh, sorry. And like opened up 99 <laughs> and was like, I'm like, man, don't do that for me. Like, I mean, I feel even worse now, you know? So <laughs> I was taking things very, very, very personally. And so I was having this sort of life or death fight or flight reaction all the time. And I was so deeply, profoundly stressed that I was making everyone around me deeply, profoundly stressed. Like, you know this, right? If someone is sad, who you care about, you feel sad. If someone is angry, it makes you angry, right? Your emotions reflect on others. So what I eventually learned was that this is like a huge learning for me. If you're CEO and probably if you're, you know, any C-level exec, the way that you most likely achieve results in your job is through others. It's uh, through how you influence others and how you guide and support others in achieving their goals, right? And what that means is that how you make people feel is incredibly important. If you make people feel stressed and angry and tired and worn out, how do you think they're going to perform? And how do you make people feel good? Actually, you have to feel good. (laughs) It's very hard to make someone feel good if you're feeling like crap. So what I came to learn very slowly, and I really didn't want to face it because my first job was in consulting where it was like, basically pure masochism, right? It was all about who can work the longest hours, who can crush themselves the most. And like, that was how you gained value, right? was by being the one who crushed yourself the most. And what I learned was, man, I have to feel good to make other people feel good so that they can do a good job and feel supported. That means that feeling good is part of my job. And that was a huge distinction for me, like a really big insight. That means that exercising enough is my job. That means that sleeping enough is my job. That means that eating healthy, that means that having good relationships, that means that having hobbies and not being a one-dimensional person who only works is my job. And if I'm not doing those things, I'm not doing my job. So um, that was the way I eventually found out of it. I also you know, uh, learned to stop micromanaging. I learned a lot of the uh, typical lessons that I think people learn their first time in a role like that. I eventually managed to get out of it. And one of the key processes that we used was exactly that manager feedback tool that I mentioned where designed so that people will give you brutal feedback. And it's not because they want to hurt you. It's because they want to help you. And the reason they're able to give you brutal feedback is because it's anonymous. And so they're able to tell you what they really think. And when you, when you receive that feedback, it's a gift. It's the best thing you can get. And I'm you know, eternally grateful for on, to Andre for giving me that feedback without us first having to do a process and helping me see that I needed to improve a lot. So with people like Andre and Mateus Moraes, who was our general counsel, as well as a lot of other stuff, 
I managed to improve. And through the processes we put in place, I managed to improve and kind of turn around my situation with self-care and helping other people and supporting them and doing their jobs. And things ended up working out, but it was not easy. Yeah, it's kind of also the oxygen mask, right? You need to put it on yourself before you can help others too, right? Yes. And exactly. and that's something that that you know you kind of probably learn the hard way of not taking care of yourself. And I think that we've all been there as founders, right? And it's I've recently been kind of geeking out on the mental health uh, stuff because it's something that I, I'm not a very balanced person in a lot of ways, and I get very obsessed with ideas, and then I run after them, and then I push myself to the limits. And, you know, I actually learned this from my co-founder, like at one point, like, you know, it took me many years, but my co-founder Thomas, you know, he would go on vacation and he would just disconnect and he would come back. And I started trying to do that. And when I did that, I I realized how much riching that was for my brain, for my creativity. The really, I like how you phrase it. It's part of your job to do exercise, part of your job to sleep well. And if you assign those as jobs rather than barriers to your productivity, that's so much such a better and more balanced, healthy way to be approaching stuff. It's also just a complete fallacy. If you're answering emails at four in the morning, that is the exact opposite of creativity. That is crushing your ability to think. That is crushing your vision. That is crushing your creativity. That is making you bad at being a CEO or an executive. You know, it's the opposite of what you should be doing. I stayed at DD for about six months to help with you know the integration of the 99 business into their uh, operations. And then I uh, took a sabbatical. So my girlfriend, who is Brazilian, and I, we um, spent about a year and a half doing things that we had always dreamed of doing from a personal growth and learning perspective. So to give you an idea, one of the things that was most impactful for me was we actually lived for several months in a uh, Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monastery, where we were living the exact life of the monks who live there. We were actually living alongside them, eating every meal together, doing every meditation session together, farming their farm where most of their food comes from. And um, they just have this utopian society where it's the happiest and most fulfilled I've ever felt. And, you know, it put a lot of life in perspective and helped me figure out what makes me happy and also helped me see things that I was obsessed with in the past that don't make me happy. Um, so this time on sabbatical has been just enormously valuable, uh, in helping me be like a better rounded person. And, uh, where I am today is that, um, I'm back to Brazil and I have this huge itch to build something again. So I'm, uh, studying a bunch of startup ideas with the intention of starting something when I find the right thing. That's awesome. I want to dig in, double click on the, you know, the, that experience, cause that's kind of a wild experience to have. I mean, what was the turning point for you to decide to do that? And then what are a couple of things that you just learned about yourself during that journey? Yeah, I mean, the turning point was I had always actually dreamed of, of doing this, of taking an extended period of time that was exclusively focused on personal development and growth. And it just, it's really hard to fit in. And I think, um, you know, there's always excuses and reasons why it's not the right time. And then all of a sudden you're 60. So I didn't want to let that happen. You know, I was, after the acquisition, I was thinking to myself, you know, what am I going to be happier with on my deathbed? Am I going to be happier because I spent an additional four years 
you know, gaining more market share in this ride hailing business, which I obviously was very passionate about and cared a lot about, or am I going to be happier if I went out and did something totally novel and um, meaningful with these next year or two? And, you know, I'm never going to be 34 or 35 again. What am I going to be happier with? And the answer seems pretty clear when I thought about it that way. Um, and the fact that I had my girlfriend to do it with. So that was basically why I made the decision. And I mean, the learnings were uh, just manifold. I mean, so many different things. One of the big things that I, I learned from the meditation retreat, to go back to the example that I was mentioning earlier, was actually about status orientation. I realized how much our environment, looking at the feed on LinkedIn, where people are doing a lot of self-promotion about their latest fundraising or their latest amazing achievement with their business or whatever, how much this sort of orients us towards, towards status. And, you know, there's actually a good reason for it in uh, evolution. When we were a hunter-gatherer tribe, if you lost status and you were kicked out of the tribe as a result, you were going to die. And if you had higher status, you were going to be more likely to spread your genes to the next generation, which is exactly why we actually exist. So there's a good reason for it. But, you know, like a lot of other things in today's world, it's not actually nearly as valuable anymore for survival, but it gets really easy to be sort of caught up in, am I doing enough? Am I successful enough? Is my title large enough? Did we raise enough money? Is our valuation high enough? Because of all these comparisons, which are frankly, in, the real, in reality, irrelevant. But I think a lot of people in our startup world sort of suffer with this status orientation and get caught up in a rat race. You know, we're, we're all proud that we're not in the traditional rat races of consulting and banking, but it's a different kind of rat race where there's a lot of really great reasons to be in it. And uh, we do things that hopefully matter and make a difference. But then there's also these reasons to do things such as seeking status that actually don't make us happy. And so um, that was a big learning for me. And it doesn't mean that I have totally stopped caring about status. I don't think it's possible to do that. But it does mean that I can now be a lot more conscious about when I'm making a decision because subconsciously I think that it'll help me gain status. And the same exact way that you can be aware of other cognitive biases like confirmation bias or recency bias, these things that we understand well and that we try to you know, disarm. I think you can do that with uh, sort of status as well. So that was like an example of a really big learning that I got specifically in the, the meditation retreat. Yeah, it's an interesting thought because it's hard because if we set like goals and we're trying to achieve something and then the status becomes an accelerant for that, it's kind of that, and there's you know the, the dopamine hit of like having, being recognized. How do you find yourself balancing that? Because at, at one point, like I'm thinking about my personal journey and like I'm trying to build something. And so like, as I build, you know, this next kind of chapter and I'm trying to help early stage founders, I want to be seen as someone who's really supporting and giving back to the ecosystem and connecting people. And eventually I'm, I'll probably raise some money and invest in some of these companies. And so the status is like a huge facilitator for that. And or how are you thinking about that with your next venture? It's also easy for you because you've been super successful, right? And so like, is this something that becomes easier once you've had some degree of success or is it something that like just everyone you think makes sense to find the kind of the balancing in terms of your next thing and balancing the status and facilitating your success 
versus kind of what's healthy and what, what makes you feel good? Absolutely. So I think that it's about contemplating and really understanding what makes you happy, right? So like, I'm quite confident that the purpose of my life is to be happy and to enjoy the fact that I even get to have a life. The universe has been around for 13 billion years. And the fact that I get to be here for, I don't know, maybe a hundred is just incredible. It's so insignificant. And yet it's so meaningful because it's so unlikely. And so I'm pretty sure that the purpose of my life is to enjoy the fact that I got to be alive at all. And while I'm here, to love the hell out of the people around me and to try to help as much as I can in whatever way I can uh, by contributing to the people around me, by contributing to my community and my society. And so if that's what makes me happy, when you think about things like status, I think it's, a, you know, the question is, is it a side effect of what you're doing? Is it a byproduct of what you're doing? Or is it like a core motivator for why you're doing what you're doing? And I think if the core motivator, if, if one of the core motivators is status, you know, unfortunately, when you achieve it, it's just not going to make you happy. And, you know, we've heard this a bajillion times and it's because it's true. <laughs> you know, you fixate on some element that doesn't actually bring happiness such as status or money or whatever and then if you achieve what you thought was the most important goal you had all of a sudden it's not good enough anymore you've got a 10 times larger goal and that's called the hedonic treadmill right it's like we're very well understood whereas um if your primary motivations for doing something are really to be able to make the contribution that you want to make to solving some problem that you think is important, uh, to be able to improve the lives of the people who benefit from your solving that problem, uh, to contribute through your relationships to the people you love and care about. And, you know, as you're describing, you know, building a community that is going to solve a lot of problems for Brazil, which is a country that we love. So that's a really valuable primary motivator that will make you happy. If um, status comes as a side byproduct of that, that's okay. You know, and I'm sure it will help you in your business and achieving your mission. If it's the main thing that's driving you, you know, it won't make you happy. What I love about these podcasts, I feel super lucky because, you know, I get to just have all these conversations and learn and share this with other people. So, and I really enjoyed this conversation a lot. Like I'm excited by what you're doing and where your head is. Like, it's one of those things where as I listen, I'm just like, you know what, this is providing me inspiration on, you know, maybe I need to make a five degree adjustment here because I don't have these things top of mind all the time. And hearing, you know, your perspective on it is, is hopefully for the audience listening also is can give them some wisdom as they enter in their journey and prepare themselves for the entrepreneurial ups and downs that exist. If they have the tools to be equipped to tackle this really challenging journey that's in front of them, or they're in the middle of, in the eye of the storm, that's kind of part of my objective with this podcast as well. I think it's amazing what you're doing. And, you know, thank you for, you know, building this library of the best wisdom that you've been able to get out of all kinds of different people who think differently. It's, it's just massively valuable. And it's something that we can, you know, there's a lot of podcasts that we can listen to. There are very few, you know, almost none that are specifically from the people who are in our ecosystem. So I think it's a massively valuable service that you're doing to the ecosystem and I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.